This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Comedy horror in games. OSS graphic design. Guy Madden. And Amoeba UFOs. It's the critical moment in the heist of a lifetime, but things have gone sideways. Bullets are coming from all directions, so you need to think and act quickly. Find your friends. Keep your head down. And don't tip your hand. Never Bring a Knife is a social deduction game with less talking and more shooting from our friends at Atlas Games. In Never Bring a Knife, each player has a secret role, cop or criminal. Pay attention to figure out who's on your team, then work together to take down the opposition. When the first player falls, their whole team loses and the other team wins. Never Bring a Knife is fast, it's action-packed, and it has duffel bags full of cash. Actual duffel bags full of cash not included. It's also available in friendly local game stores and online starting Friday, January 17th. Stop in and pick up your copy or go to atlas-games.com slash never bring a knife. Or follow the link in the show notes. Because guns and money always make game night more fun. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And today, the miniatures are scattered off any old which way, and a lot of them seem to be missing hands for some reason. Did we Did we go down to the discount miniatures bin at S-Mart Gaming, or are we talking, as per Patreon backer Walter Manbeck, about comedy horror RPG? Uh, Walter points out that comedy horror RPG play is very hard to do. What do you need in place to best facilitate this in a campaign when adopting Ash Evil Dead? Robin? Right. And this is a uh, tell me more segment as well. Uh, uh, Walter is responding to my recent uh, review of the third season of Ash uh, versus Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. And, and as often happens in the gaming hut, uh, we're going to start with a little bit of premise disputing. Often, <laughs> I think the challenge... Uh, in uh, the intersection of comedy and horror is to keep comedy out of your regular horror <laughs> rather than in introducing it uh, to uh, to horror that it's actually uh, the problem with comedy and role playing is that it's hard to sustain uh, but horror naturally lends itself to uh, comic relief and gaming in general when things get tense people crack jokes and so if you are starting to introduce a level of splat stick uh, to uh, the proceedings i think that's not necessarily that difficult right if you look at the well first of all the original evil dead the very first film is a straight up horror film it's yeah. the second one the uh uh, Chuck Jones influence uh, uh, suddenly meets the uh, Mario Bava influence and then they, they go to town. So I guess the first thing is look at uh, the first film of Evil Dead and look at what the second one does to just create the uh, same world of consequences, the same world building, but all of a sudden uh, everything funny. goes up yeah. to 11 and starts squishing all over the place and things get uh, gruesomely funny instead of just uh, harrowing. And uh, because we live in a fallen universe, we should point out we are referring to the first two Sam Raimi Evil Dead films, not the second Evil Dead film and the thuddingly humorless remake of it. Um, yeah, and so um, I think basically the the sort of core element to running a comedy horror game or a horror comedy game is that when the comedy inevitably starts, lean into it in the gross direction or the harrowing direction. Uh, if the comedy is like, you know, then he pulls off his mask and it's just old Mr. Withers. That's not scary. So don't lean into that. Do he tries to pull off his mask and his skin keeps tearing away from his skull. Oh, he thought he was old Mr. Withers. That was his problem. And now he's a horrible half, uh, faced monster and that's kind of worse but also what was funny because we had a subversion of expectations there right so that you're still going for shock it's just the shock is not just 
uh, at the horror of the situation, there is still the horror, but also it's it, it's so over the top that it's funny. And, and so basically, uh, just take a, a look at the situation and then go, how could this turn into uh, slapstick? So, uh, you know, your uh, visit down into the ghoul crypt, you uh, emphasize the, the gooiness that you're going for uh, uh, disgust as uh the the emotion but it's it's humorous disgust and so uh, everything smells terrible and uh there's something that sort of undercuts the the horror of it maybe you know you're headed down to the ghoul crypt and then there's some obscene graffiti on the wall or what have you and then uh when you get to the ghouls uh you know they are munching away on a person and you uh and they sort of look over at you and they uh you know waggle their noses and go meep meep and uh the uh, the thing to do, I guess, is just basically to, to picture um, what Sam Raimi would do with it or what the uh, the showrunners of the various seasons of the, the TV show would do and how they would go over the top with it and uh, make it crazy. Yeah. Um, and I, I think this is probably as good a point as any to point out that there is, in fact, an Army of Darkness role playing game um, uh, written by our pal Shane Hensley and available at some point from Eden Studios. It may even still be available. I have no idea what the licensing looked like, um, but you can probably scrounge one up somehow and you're scrounging. And that obviously has lots of good specific advice for the specific type of horror humor in the Evil Dead arc uh, series, I guess. Um, although it predates the, uh, the the TV show, it's still the same brand of humor. And I think the another part of the thing is to make sure that the uh, antagonists, the monsters, are uh, in some way like the Deadites, that they are both horrible and uh, contemptible and you still really really want to blow them up uh yet there are there's also something ir- irreverent about them that they're you know basically uh the deadites are demonic uh, bugs bunnies and so uh, uh first of all i think it's very important that they, the creatures talk so the your your ghouls down in the ghoul crypt uh in a straight up game it's ridiculous if they talk so here you want them to be ridiculous so they mm-hmm. uh they have dialogue with you and uh you don't make them the sort of quasi sympathetic ghouls that you see in the dreamlands but they're uh really nasty gross and uh if you're and i think first of all you got to make sure that you're as usual is your group signed on to this and is your is everybody in the group willing to tolerate uh the extremity of content that horror comedy uh, provides for uh, just the you know reanimator of course is another big example and that stuff is pretty extreme so uh, make sure everybody digs that and digs it a lot and is willing to play with that imagery because if you're upsetting people instead of grossing them out and causing laughter obviously that's uh, a, a big problem and not what you're shooting for right and uh, as with all role-playing, but especially I think with horror and, and comedy, which do require a rhythm, just be alert for an opportunity to go up to the next level. And whether that is the next level of ridiculousness or the next level of horror, or ideally both at roughly the same time. And if something inspired happens at the table, lean into it. So if you, you're fighting ghouls and um, uh, one of the players is backing away saying, good boy, good boy, love your snossages, then maybe that can become an ongoing bit where the ghouls are like literally demon dogs in that they have all the funny dog behavior while they're also horrible shambling corpse things that want to rip your face off and live in your skin. And and that contrast will hopefully be productive of future horror. So if you can set something up to be, I don't want to say a recurring bit necessarily, but something that's productive of recurring bits, I guess is what I want to say, um, as opposed to a simple, um, ha ha, that ghoul is fat. If you can say, you know, if, if you can take that ghoul and take his, his fatness and make it part of the ongoing bit that ghouls are dogs are doggos, you can say, um, uh, one of the other ghouls can say, he's not going to chase you. Um, he's tuckered out after catching that mailman. And then that becomes, oh, he's a ghoul, but also he's a dog. Also, he ate a mailman. That's horrible. And then you see, like, the hand and the scattered blood-stained letters lying around underneath him. And, and that becomes the, the tag on the bit, right? Right. Um, it has been said that uh, comedy is tragedy without the consequences. And mm-hmm. in horror comedy, there are... Uh, consequences. People, uh, mailmen get eaten. People get ripped from limb, limb from limb. But there is uh, a sort of a protected class of characters in Evil Dead. It is 
uh, Ash in the show. It is Ash and his uh, two uh, buddies, members of the team. And in the third, or sorry, yeah, in the third season, uh, a daughter is added to the mix. And you're still reasonably sure that uh, nothing permanently horrible is going to happen to those characters, or rather when horrible things happen to them, that they are still recoverable. Uh, you know, Ash loses his hand and that, you know, becomes uh, his platform for his uh, his chainsaw, for example. And, bang stick. Uh, right. And so in this case, you perhaps uh, want to go to a situation where the uh, the player characters actually are relatively, they can get banged around, they can get their heads turned around backwards and have to turn them around, they can, uh, you know, uh, lose bits of themselves and have them horribly replaced. But this is not a game as in a standard horror uh, situation where the uh, characters can die at any moment, that they have a level of immunity and that a bad day at the gaming table is one in which uh, they fail and the demons uh, run loose across the world or uh, other sympathetic uh, supporting characters uh, get wiped out, but that they don't. That if an Evil Dead uh, episode where Ash actually dies permanently and then that's the end of the show is uh, profoundly disappointing. Uh, mm. So I would want to take that off the table that you know that uh, no matter how... Uh, awful everything gets that you are more resilient in the face of uh, terrible things uh, than uh, you would be saying a call of cthulhu game so you're not going to permanently uh, lose your mind and therefore uh, go out of play and you're not going to be physically destroyed and, and go out of play but all sorts of other things that cause you problems and are just gross uh, can happen to you right and that's sort of a different version of it's, it's kind of even an easier version of the sort of standard contract you have in an ongoing horror game, which is that uh, you will come as close to killing the player characters as you can for the horror and the danger of it. But the game will not actually be about how Dracula wants to literally kill you because then you'd probably be dead and the game would be over. So you have to create dramatic necessity for uh, the monsters to be toying with you or for the sun to come up or whatever it is that keeps you just barely alive at the moment. And the great thing is that with horror, you have another excuse for doing it if something is actually funny or you can do something awful to them if there is a, I, I guess in the Ash universe, you'd say body comedy to go with body horror, but a body comic way of getting around the awful discourse. So if like, you know, the, 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 the ghouls like tore out your liver and, and were chewing on it. You can replace it with a, a liver from a canopic jar that you found, and now you've got a mummy liver in you. And so every so often you have to say, eh, what's that? I'm 9,000 years old. I can't hear you. And uh, play like you've got an old uh, mummy liver in you, and you only want to drink uh, palm wine, and you can't drink modern liquor. And it just becomes another bit that you can do while still having, hopefully, the literally visceral horror of having your liver torn out at one point. Now, uh, what Evil Dead does is it takes a, a standard... Uh, monster or rather a hybrid of the zombie and the demon and then makes them uh, funny in an annoying way that makes you want to see their heads blown off. Uh, the other uh, side of that is that you can take uh, something that is uh, outwardly innocuous or funny and make them horribly dangerous. So, uh, you know, murderous killer puppies or Mr. Stay Puft, for example, and mm. uh, something that uh, seems, you know, uh, Cartoon characters, uh, uh, stuff, uh, imagery from children's literature. Of course, you don't have to make clowns scary. Clowns are already scary. That's, that's a well-known fact. But uh, that's another way to sort of uh, uh, take uh, classic horror tropes and 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 turn them uh, on their head is to make uh, non-horrific, safe, comfortable, nice things. You know, your security blanket comes to uh, strangle you. Uh, things that are images of of comfort and niceness. You know, the ice cream truck uh, is now James's a, neighborhood. Yes, <laughs> it is is now a uh, a Christine style uh, killdozer uh, style monster that you have to attack. So that that's another way that you can uh, basically everything you're doing here is is taking. Uh, the traditional way of doing things and and uh, turning them on their head. So look for, uh, you know, what reversal uh, can I play with tonight? Um, now, this implies, of course, that you have an ongoing series, which I think mostly in comedy in general, you don't. 
Um, a lot of this is more likely something that you're going to play as a one shot, uh, uh, like we did at our dragon meat Christmas game or, uh, something that, and in that case, although you don't need to steer people toward getting destroyed at the end, uh, you can make that more of an option if it is funny in a black humor way, uh, to have the characters, uh, uh, not survive. But I think mostly probably uh, people would rather just see, uh, w- would rather uh, survive the, the comic mayhem. Right. With, with um, uh, comic scars to indicate the, uh, the, the travails they went through. Right. Well, speaking of travails, uh, we'll be in, in a heck of a travail if we don't go down this trail to the nearest commercial and out the other side to whatever segment happens to wait for us there. You used to be a spy. You were part of the clandestine world, backed by the full strength of the security state. Then you asked the wrong questions. You found the truth. You found the vampires. And got burned. You're all alone against them. One player. One game master. Create your own agent, or take on the role of Layla Khan, ex-MI6 officer confronting her half-remembered past as a vampire thrall. Powered by the gumshoe one-to-one rules, designed for the thrilling intensity of head-to-head play. Play through three complete adventures for Layla Khan, or use them as templates to create your own mysteries. We'll give you the tools you need to battle the undead princes and crime lords. All alone. But will it be enough? Find out with Knight's Black Agents Solo Ops. At your security cleared local retailer or from the Pelgrane store. The retinal scan that you had to undergo in order to listen to this segment, as well as the extensive background check, uh, warn you that you are now about to listen to the Tradecraft Hut. And uh, this time around, I thought that we would uh, bat around uh, some uh, historical uh, curiosities uh, described in a recent uh, New York Times Magazine article that we will link to in the show notes uh, that reveals uh, that uh, the OSS... Uh, the wartime precursor of the CIA is also the precursor of an incredible amount of contemporary uh, graphic design, information design, and industrial design. And uh, this is, I think, a, a fascinating example of a need uh, following function. Uh, there's uh, no greater time that you need to convey information and have people understand it uh, than uh, in war. And uh, good old Wild Bill Donovan turns out uh, he had some some highfalutin tastes and interests that he uh, brought on board uh, with the presentation branch, it was called, of the uh, OSS. Ken, what was your first response to this piece? I mean, my first response was that uh, someone was told that they had to make it an eight-page piece. And only had six pages, maybe five, of actual material. Ah, fun ruiner. (laughs) Yeah. But my second response was, um, I like the idea of uh, industrial design being a weapon of war in World War II, uh, fighting for democracy. Uh, And the sort of third response was, and again, I'm going to fun ruin right at the top, that the piece sort of backs into a bigger I mean, it, it's, it's as, as though, um, uh, the piece is like, oh my God, did you know that Eros Saarinen worked for the OSS? And it's like, well, that is interesting. Look at all the, uh, d- design goal, uh, things that came out of, uh, out of, um, uh, the OSS. All these designers were in it. And of course, the real argument is, well, it was a total war. Every aspect of society was mobilized, including industrial design. None of these trends were new. That was just that everyone sort of funnels into the war effort. And then funnels back out of it. And that is, uh, basically, if you are, um, uh, oh so social, as they say about the OSS, uh, you were given something to do, uh, for the war effort. And sometimes it turns into cool movies like John Ford. Sometimes it turns into, um, uh, neat, um, uh, animation like with, uh, Walt Disney. And sometimes it turns into meeting chairs like the Eames boys. So it's, it's just more of a matter of everyone was doing their part, as they say back in the day, uh, in a, in a wartime scenario. So of course, industrial design is going to go through that funnel. And the funnel that happens to be standing is the affected Yale funnel of the OSS, uh, thanks to uh, Wild Bill being a 
rich stockbroker instead of, I don't know, a spy. <laughs> but I think it is nonetheless uh, interesting to look at how all of these things were sort of crystallized in that forge. And yeah. for those of us who are in the business of uh, uh, writing spy or spy adjacent games and fiction occasionally, that it's uh, worth uh, looking at because, of course, graphic design and information design are very important uh, for uh, role-playing games. And the uh, idea that this introduces a new official look for uh, the U.S. government and especially the national security state, I think, is um, uh, deeply redolent and has interesting uh, cross uh, currents to it. So, for example, the idea that the sleek, modern uh, presentation room that Eero Saarinen designs for the OSS, uh, they didn't invent Eero Saarinen, but they called on him. And before, mm -hmm. there's sort of two previous sort of official styles of what U.S. government things look like. There's the original sort of neoclassical uh, stuff of the founding fathers, and then it kind of goes through a, a, a stuffy Victorian 19th century phase, and then all of a sudden, uh, as uh, so many things in design and fashion kind of turn in the 20s and 30s into what we recognize, uh, you look at his sketch of what a war room looks like, and uh, it's... Uh, what we conceive of as sort of a futuristic looking uh, set that would still be very cool to have uh, you briefed by the Ordo Veritatis in or right. uh, turn out to or be certainly the De uh, Delta Green conference room. Yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, and culturally, what happens with that, of course, is Ken Ken Adam gets a hold of that in the designs for the early Bond films, uh, which then filter back into what does a war room look like? And uh, there is now a fourth style of U.S. Uh, government design, which is the grimly utilitarian uh, broom <laughs> closet design, uh, which you uh, will all recognize from the photographs of the the Bin Laden takedown where you, you had uh, Obama and his uh, war cabinet all sitting around this completely anonymous, dumb looking room that could be a conference room in a, in a Holiday Inn. And that's the design style that you see uh, all the time, for example, in Veep uh, that is... Uh, a very sort of uh, downscale and boring. And uh, I would certainly want my uh, imaginary spy thrillers to be happening in the Eero Saren and uh, Ken Adam design world and uh, not necessarily in that one. Well, I mean, that, that's one of the really good ways that you can sell theme and tone in your in your game is that if you're having your meeting in a swank Ken Adam Eero Saarinen room, that's one sort of of spy show. Um, if you're having it in the sort of grimly utilitarian Veep uh, Rubicon sort of uh, facility, that's a different kind of spy show. And if you look, for example, at uh, the, 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 the whole program began um, as an attempt to build a equivalent to the Situation Room uh, in the British War Cabinet, uh, War Offices, the war rooms there, uh, for President Roosevelt. It was... They started out, they, they wanted to put up a display at the World's Fair that would be an ongoing, here's the, uh, how great America is and don't come at her. Uh, after Pearl Harbor, that became a, um, progress of the war display that they wanted to build for President Roosevelt. And the, the group, which was called Q2, uh, was part of the visual presentation wing of, uh, the OSS, which included John Ford's propaganda films and Walt Disney's, uh, cartoons and, and all the rest of it. And the Q2 team puts together this in this incredibly modern looking as uh, modern at the time looking situation room and then rapidly gets sidelined and no one builds it. They build a somewhat less, uh, somewhat more scaled down version of it for the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff in uh, what will become the Pentagon. But the White House never gets a situation room. President Roosevelt runs the whole war out of the old map room, a Victorian room with a lot of atlases and some maps stacked to the wall. And he's perfectly happy with that. And design-wise, as a person, when you think of Roosevelt, you are thinking of that era, that sort of Edwardian, old mm -hmm. money uh, look. And it would, it would seem very strange and anachronistic to see him suddenly show up in that uh, sort of forward-looking uh, a situation a room of of uh, the Saarinen design, right? And if you look at if you look at pictures of the actual Cuban Missile Crisis situation room, it looks like a function room at a decent hotel. 
<laughs> it's it, it, it's not I mean, it again, if you went into like a like a maybe not a Four Seasons, but like a really good Hilton in 1962 and you asked for their best conference room, add like two cameras and a desk to it. And that's the situation room. Um, the real one, uh, the, the sort of future one that they built for the, um, uh, uh, for the Pentagon, uh, for what would become the Pentagon had all manner of tech. I mean, the, one of the interesting technical challenges was how to present data in, in the room in all formats, because they didn't know what they would need to show the guys. So they would need to figure out ways to do automated, automated slide projectors, for example, or project. They basically built a big world map and then they would project data onto it with a transparency and that could be weather it could be enemy troop movements or or or, uh, ships it could be whatever it happens to be and they invented something which i love called the epidioscope and this is not a machine for uh intriguing game design for war (laughs) it's not for detecting epi ravishal it's not for detecting epidio ravishal although god knows we need one we need one of those. It it actually projects opaque images onto a screen. So if you've got like a, a bullet or a picture, a photograph, and you don't have time to make a slide of it, they figured out a way to look at it and then shoot it up onto the screen so that everyone could see it. And this uh, sort of high-tech thinking wound up, to the extent it wound up anywhere, in what would become the Pentagon in the Joint Chiefs uh, room, not in the White House. And... Uh, I mostly this was a, a sideline that it was an excuse to say epidioscope, but I think <laughs> that one of the interesting elements of it is that in, it's not just design, but it's also information, literally information technology in terms of how do you make it look like that? And that is one of the interesting things that does come out of it is that the, pre- that the, um, uh, presentation branch then after having not built the situation room for the White House, does go into how do you make a pamphlet that shows you how to stab a Nazi? How do you make a, a diagram that shows how many tanks are being built in Germany compared to how many ball bearing plants are being bombed in Germany? How do you present the data? And a lot of these come out of Bill Donovan's experiences in wall street, where he was one of the sort of forerunners of the colored pamphlet as a selling sheet. So he would show up to sell you stocks and where everyone else just has a boring old typed list, he has a cool colored pamphlet. And so he's ahead of the the, the curve already. And then obviously if you get, you know, Louis Kahn and um, uh, Norman Belgetti's and um, uh, Mahola Naj and all these other insane designers, then you get some pretty swell looking pamphlets. And under the sort of Darwinian pressure of figuring out how to make a pamphlet that you can design fast, reproduce rapidly, and then show to the dim-witted politicians, that that pressure rapidly creates sort of a best practice that becomes, as uh, as suggested by the article, sort of the international, the mid-century modern international style, certainly of uh, of United States information presentation. You look at encyclopedias from the fifties, and you get sort of an idea of what we're talking about. Right, and information uh, uh, as it is presented is uh, more easily remembered if it has emotional content. And so uh, it is, I I think, also worth looking at the emotional message of this ultra-clean, ultra-modern design style as contrasted with the design style of uh, uh, the uh, uh, Germans, uh, which, of course, uh, you know, the the Nazi style was uh, in some senses uh, modernistic, but in many other ways was deliberately backward looking. It right. was they, about- they went back to the fracture, insane uh, sort of old timey lettering a lot in, in even very official documents. You know, that just slows down your comprehension. Yes. Um, but also it, uh, each of those things has a message about what the two fighting forces represent is that, uh, in response to this thing of we're going to go back to a, a mystical past, uh, the design response of the, the stuff coming out of the OSS and elsewhere is we are, uh, looking forward to a clean, scientific, rational future. And so, uh, this pits uh, you know, the, the future versus the past, uh, rationalism versus, uh, atavistic thinking. And, uh, it's also, uh, notable that a lot of the designers that he tapped also worked on the 39 New York World's Fair, which also was meant to project a sense of, uh, a coming revolution in, uh, uh rationality and science, which is then, uh, you know, taken and, and pitted against 
the uh, the Axis forces and the idea of superior American technology being part of what would uh, give them the edge and, and defeat uh, the, the, the Nazis was a, a big part of people's belief in uh, the possibility of success. And so a, a sleekly modern pamphlet that is telling you how to uh, properly uh, assemble and use a grenade has the immediate utilitarian uh, purpose of clearly telling you how to do that and not blow your hands off, but also uh, giving you the sense that you are on the side uh, with the edge, the side that mm -hmm. uh, owns the future and is going to, uh, you know, wipe out this regression to the past. And they've got their hands because of the way that the OSS operated in basically every aspect of information. And by 1944, what's called the presentation branch is legitimately a real branch of the OSS, just like research and analysis or operations or X2, which is the uh, decoding things branch of the OSS. So it's a real deal. And uh, basically what the model is, is that some Yaley calls someone who he knows who's a good designer or has some artistic or intellectual gift that will be useful and says, come on down and I'll get you signed up. And that, for example, is how Saarinen gets in is because McLaughlin, this, this architect of the world's fair, uh, knew Saarinen and Saarinen got a draft notice and was worried about it. And so McLaughlin calls him and says, don't worry about serving in the front lines like a plebeian. I'll let you design uh, three dimensional structures for this, uh, for this project, for the presentation branch. But what that means is that fictively, virtually anything can have passed through these guys' hands in the course of the war because the OSS, much like the later CIA, is not super great at compartmentalizing information. Well, if there's uh, information that I know is strictly compartmentalized, it's this podcast, which is compartmentalized into, I, I believe, usually uh, four segments. And I think we're done segment two, and it's time to move on through this commercial to segment three. The Best of Asphageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. This podcast might be dead by dawn if you don't grab a boomstick alongside beloved Patreon backers. Robbie Carlton. Steve Segetti. Ruth Tillman. Tristan Knight. And Andrew Miller. The whirring of the projector, the sight of the mysterious cigarette smoke curling up through the beam, and the shushing of people as we move to the center tell us that we have once more stepped into the cinema hut. But the shushing is not coming from our fellow patrons. It's coming from the screen because we're looking at Guy Madden's first film to me. Careful, because we're talking about Guy Madden at the behest of Patreon backer Mark Kevin Hall. And Guy Madden, of course, is a uh, noble son of the great northern uh, nation of Canada. Yes. Uh, a, a disciple of the magic beaver in, in I think, in every sense. And, and this, uh, by, the, by the way, is, is another Tell Me More segment because this uh, Mark's question is inspired by your Ken Robin Consume Media capsule review of uh, The Lighthouse, which you describe as Guy Madden Light. And uh, uh, I have yet yeah. to see The Lighthouse. But uh, I am not surprised uh, to hear you uh, say that because 
uh, certainly uh, the madness of uh, of that uh, uh, trailer uh, was uh, was pretty intense. So, um, so yes, uh, yeah. uh, Madden is not uh, just a a a, uh, a son of the Silver Birch, but very particularly a, a product of the prairies. Uh, he is from uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, and got his start uh, in the '80s with another uh, with a group of uh, sort of hard scrabble up from nowhere. Uh, uh, filmmakers who started making uh, shorts uh, with uh, the Winnipeg Film Group, and uh, they had this very sort of uh, stylized, uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek, but also kind of uh, Nordic and deadpan uh, sensibility. The first uh, film of his that I saw was uh, one of his early shorts, The Dead Father. Um, Unlike a lot of uh, film directors, uh, he not only got his start in shorts, but continues to make them and has made them all along. A uh, part of that is because he sort of, uh, like, uh, Agnes Varda has one foot also in the installation art world. And, uh, that, uh, provides him a, a funding platform, uh, for the making of, of shorts, which he's uh, continued to do. So, um, Madden starts his career with a series of films. And then there's sort of a shift partway through. Uh, his career, his first uh, feature film as uh, Tales from the Gimli Hospital, that's from 88. Uh, then Archangel follows in 89 and Careful in 91. And although these have a sense of humor to them, they also are very uh, Scandinavian in their aesthetic, as is fitting uh, not only uh, from a, a northern country, but uh, uh, someone who lives in the prairies, because of course, uh, lots of people from Scandinavia uh, settled uh, on the prairies, just as they did uh, in the uh, uh, in Minnesota. Uh, there's also a sort of an '80s Canadian film thing. Of, well, Canadian film is very stylized and kind of doer, and uh, it's there is a sense of humor in the early films, but it's not always super apparent, and also the pace uh, is a little slow. So I would not necessarily start with his very earliest films uh ken is where, where would you start with uh with madden i mean given that careful set the hook that has me still on the line i can't say don't start with careful uh one of the things that's nice about careful is it is the first color madden film in 1992 i guess and uh i saw it just out of nothing back in the day i was seeing a movie every thursday come hell or high water and we'd heard about the thing. We saw the still. It looked fun. We went and mind blown. And it it is because there is sort of one high concept to it. It's about a, a t- tiny town in Austria that is under threat by omnipresent avalanche. So everyone has to speak in whispers and maintain uh, rigid emotional uh, asceticism. They can't express themselves uh, loudly or genuinely or an avalanche will crush them. And this is sort of the... Freudian, you can't even say it's high concept. It's the, the Freudian um, uh, scrim through which everything Madden does is uh, it has been done ever since. So it sets a really good pattern, I think, for, for later Madden. And as I say, unlike some later Maddens, the story, you can you can track it and it sort of makes sense. And then you also have the, 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 the crazy visual style, the sort of playing around with expressionism and, and silent film techniques and all the other um, uh, wonderful things that he does with a camera, many of which were being done by, you know, UFA in 1925, but are still wonderful today. Yeah. So, so visually, he's, he's highly influenced by a Dreyer and Murnau. And then mm. uh, a little later on, uh, the Todd Browning influence on his work uh, starts to come out as well. Yeah. And uh, his style shifts with a short film that he makes uh, for the Toronto International Film Festival as a bumper to play in front of the films uh, in the year 2000. As a tw- uh, This was the 20th, 5th anniversary of the festival, and uh, they commissioned a bunch of different filmmakers to make various shorts about the joy of filmmaking. And he makes a film called The Heart of the World, uh, which... Uh, takes all of his stylistic elements and then pumps up the pacing and the humor. And often this this little bit of uh, film playing in front of the, the other various features that were TIFF that year uh, gets a more rapturous reception than the film that follows. There's just something very uh, uh, viscerally appealing and fun uh, about his style all of a sudden. And this is what 
he then brings forward into uh, the saddest music in the world, which is was sort of his breakthrough film in terms of uh, an audience to the extent that his films uh, have one. Uh-huh. It has Isabella <laughs> Rossellini in it and Mark McKinney and Mark from McKinney. Uh, Kids in the Hall. And it uh, uses all of the stylistic elements, except the cutting is now fast. And the jokes are more obviously jokes that you're uh, meant to uh, laugh at. To laugh at. <laughs> and and what and what I think one of the the, the big thing that that happened around 2000 is that he met uh, a another filmmaker named Deco Dawson and went through a very brief but very productive creative partnership in the sense of it actually changed Madden's style. I, I, I hesitate to say for the better, but certainly for the more accessible, as you say. And um, Dawson and Madden made a film that I consider one of Madden's. Uh, under underloved high points, the Dracula from Pages from a Virgin's Diary ballet movie of a uh, performance of Dracula at the Winnipeg Ballet, I guess it was. And uh, he made that for Canadian television and then turned it into a feature film uh, when the TV special got such good reviews. And it is a Dracula that is truer to the spirit of the book than most Dracula's while also being a ballet. And as Madden said, I think at the time uh, he claimed not to have finished the novel and to hate ballet. And so <laughs> if you get the, if you, if you get the idea of, of sort of Madden's literal oblique approach, he and Dawson created a, a real magical masterpiece. And um, even people who, who do like ballet have, have watched it uh, and come away um, uh jazzed up if not uh, uh necessarily thrilled per se and of course i who who loves dracula think very very highly of it so the, i think that that deco dawson window uh, like you say between say 2000 and 2002 is that point where that that inflection point where madden goes off and becomes a a more energetic director as well as having the crazy sense of style and the freudian sense of story that have that have driven him throughout another tiff moment involving guy madden they used to do a series where uh, directors would introduce uh, older films and explain what they liked about them they don't do that anymore in part because the q and a's eventually turned into well I didn't direct the film, so I don't know that much about it. But Madden introduced the 1936 film The Devil Doll, in which uh, Lionel Barrymore, uh, sometimes in drag as an old lady, uh, has a conspiracy where uh, they're shrinking people and putting them in the basement. So there's the great line in it, take him down into the basement and make him small. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you can definitely, uh, as soon as you saw that and saw Madden's love for that film or other sort of uh, obscure B pictures and their outlandish imagery, you see what's going on uh, with the Browning influence in uh, uh, Dracula and also uh, his next film, Brand Upon the Brain, uh, which is uh, another sort of uh, more pop cultural, more energetic film. And uh, one that I was yet again to brag about being a TIFF goer, lucky enough to see in a version where they did the sound effect live. Uh, yeah, so, they did that for most of the tour. They yeah. uh, they did that in Chicago. I saw it at the music box. Our narrator, they had a narrator as well, because why not, was Crispin Glover narrating uh, the, the movie, and then they had live fully uh, doing it. Uh, and finally, the other one that I would recommend uh, of his is his uh, mythic documentary... <laughs> <laughs> uh, my Winnipeg, uh, which uh, has some facts about Winnipeg, but it's facts about a mythological uh, Winnipeg uh, and uh, is also uh, uh, very uh, funny as well as entertaining. Um, I have to say that the most recent film of his I've seen is Keyhole from uh, 2011. And it sort of felt like to me like a step backward into the old uh, slower uh, pacing. And I have to confess that I have not seen or, or even really had on my radar too much his more recent features, seances or green fog. Have you seen either of those? I have not seen green fog and I don't think I saw seances because it was done as a installation project. And I don't think it came to MCA. I did see the forbidden room, which was something he shot at the same time as seances and was sort of the, uh, it's not the standalone version of seances because it's its own thing, but it was, it's, it's about the same sort of deal. Forbidden Room was, I think, what you're saying, the very Browning influenced, very sort of, um, thirties cinema. There's sort of a, 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 a queasy edge of adventure quality to it throughout that I enjoy greatly because Madden. Um, I thought Keyhole 
like you say, it was slower. It was, it was less Deco Dawson-y, but I think a lot of that is he thought he was making a haunted house movie. And so his notion of haunted houses is that everything has to happen at sort of a glacial pace. Um, and in fairness, I did not find my Winnipeg as hilarious as you did, possibly because I have no skin in making fun of Winnipeg. But the uh, I, I came to my Winnipeg very, very enthusiastic. And so maybe that was my fault. But if you're looking for things from that era, dig into Cowards Bend the Knee, which is a early uh, 2003 film uh, at the beginning of sort of the my Winnipeg era and is, again, very heightened and strange and is also just more darkly messed up than I think any Madden film. So if you, if you thought I like the Freudianism, but I'd like it to be worse um, than um, uh, cowards bend the knee. It's still, it's an unforgettable visual and and film experience because Madden is one of those directors that I I think at some level, my brain got rewired by careful. So I can't not respond to him, but I think cowards bend the knee is, is very much, you know, second tier uh, premier crew Madden. If you, if you like the Madden, but you, but you don't like all the, you know, nods to conventionality. Uh, that's one of the movies that you can watch to immunize yourself from people trying to be edgy. And, and then you'll have to go off and drink for a while. Right. Well, uh, long-term listeners at this point will know that whenever Freudianism is getting worse, it's time for <laughs> us to flee to it's another side. Everything is getting worse. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every Tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. It's time once more to enter a hut. I don't know what kind of hut this is. I'm not sure. It has weird, shadowy boundaries, as if there are things that could also be in other huts, but maybe not in this one. And the mar- it's the margins of this hut seem very small. Oh, but wait a minute. There in the corner, there's the gray alien uh, hanging around uh, with the uh, Nordic alien. They're drinking kombucha. And uh, they're looking forward in particular to this segment because of its theme. But there's the uh, alien big cat out on the moor. We can see it through the window because we've entered the Elliptony hut, the hut of weird mysteries that are not quite supernatural, but not quite science. And uh, this time around, we are here to talk about Trevor James Constable and the alien orgone amoeba theory of UFOs. And uh, in a way, this, uh, I think, sort of harkens back to our uh, discussion of uh, electronic uh, voice phenomenon, of the Raudai voices, uh, but kind of with cameras, because it turns out that if you mess with your camera and point it up at the sky, uh, you will see things uh, that were not visible to your naked eye. And according to Trevor James Constable, those things are flying amoeba creatures up in the sky that we sometimes mistake for UFOs. Ken, he's uh, written a couple of books. Tell us about those. His main book uh, is The Cosmic Pulse of Life, um, which is um, uh, a sort of uh, a summa of his physics. Is that the word? Biophysics? Uh, His first book on the topic was called They Live in the Sky. But he's one of those guys who, when he gets a good idea, he'll repeat it in all the books. So you don't need to go hunting down the 1958 uh, they live in the sky. Uh, you can get the cosmic pulse of life and get most of the good ideas. The, the notion being that, uh, Trevor James Constable, who was a Kiwi, a New Zealander, um, was in the merchant marine, got into photography because he, uh, was interested in airplanes, wrote some World War II aviation histories of the, uh, goodness me, the heroic Luftwaffe was awful heroic, uh, genre, 
which uh, I think uh, well-meaning people can disagree with, uh, and um, uh, then slowly gets drawn, because he is already a fringe weirdo, uh, into uh, Wilhelm Reich's orgone theories and starts studying them. Uh, he works with a fellow named James Woods, who I was briefly excited to believe was beloved actor James Woods, but in fact is an entirely different guy. <laughs> That'd be a little early for him. And he was out in uh, uh, Mexico uh, and the Californian desert, and they would stand at the top of a hill. Uh, usually Constable would do it, and he would make magical gestures that would focus the orgone so that they would attract these immense orgone jellyfish that live in the sky, and they could be photographed with infrared or ultraviolet film. So Constable acts as the... Right, because if, we, if bio- you're an invisible sky amoeba, your life has not been interesting. So somebody making cool hand gestures is going to attract your attention. Especially if you live in the California desert, because frankly, it's not that interesting in the atmosphere either. Uh, so anyway, um, uh, he's a bioenergetic beacon, which is the best kind of beacon, I suppose, and uh, goes on to to draw things in. And believe it or not, as you say, you point a camera at the sky, you're working with a uh, possible character actor, James Woods. And yeah, stuff's going to show up. Uh, there are cool blobs. Um, there is a time sequence that shows the because well, bl- it can't possibly be that there are different temperature levels in the air in the sky at any given time that would make blobby shapes in infrared. That's, that's nuts. Well, Robin, first of all, listen to yourself. Temperature inversions in the sky is like the definition of orgone. Exactly. Because orgone makes the sky warm with love. So these blobby things, it's like you'd say, well, I don't know why I would point my camera at, at the warm water and expect to see a bunch of glows in infrared when you and I know that the warm water is where the fishes get it down. So, Robin, I, I can't believe that you would try this pseudoscientific uh, questioning of giant sky amoebas. And um, uh, later... Ah, uh, what do I want to say? Later, uh, theorists, is that the word? Um, have compared them to sylphs, the, uh, elements, elementals of the air, uh, identified by, um, uh, by, uh, Paracelsus and have implied that the sylphs flow in and out of the third and fourth dimension. Um, this is a guy named Z.S. Livingston, if you're curious about our modern day sylphologist and, um, uh, that the sylphs may in fact be at war with uh, other kinds of aliens, that the sylphs uh, or the uh, sky amoebas, which I think is a better name, um, are only some of what we see. Even Trevor Constable uh, believes that some of it is unknown aircraft. Right. And well, you're that, not going to uh, get invited to too many UFO conferences if you completely explain all UFOs as being sky amoebas, because no one else right. will sit with you at lunch. So um, I think it makes sense to... Uh, you know, just aesthetically, you go, this doesn't, it's not one of those theories that explains everything. It's just one of the things out there is sky amoebas. And so I, I admire the lack of totalism involved there as well as the desire to eat lunch with other people at UFO conventions. Right. And um, uh, he uh, he learned about um, uh, the, the orgone from a guy named Frank Thomas, who is also not the Frank Thomas you're thinking of. He just hangs out with people with very familiar names. And then gets orgone up and it attracts sky amoebas. His uh, general sort of uh, theory can be traced back, if I want to say that, to Charles Fort's discussion of the sky jellies and all the mysterious things that fall out of the sky. There's a uh, star jelly that I think we talked about in the blob episode. And also, of course, to the great and magnificent and underloved Arthur Conan Doyle horror story, The Horror of the Heights which is about a giant sky amoeba that it runs into a, a pilot who's trying for the altitude record and is a great thing to read when you're thinking about Trevor Constable and the, um, uh, and the sky amoebas. And by the way, when I say that he believes in experimental aircraft, he also believes that the experimental aircraft are mostly b- built out of ether and that they travel through the ether, that they are ether ships that uh, sort of materialize into our dimensionality when they land. Um, not that they are made out of like aluminum and, and titanium and whatnot and fly around. So I just wanted to make sure that I was not misrepresenting Trevor James Constable's well thought out uh, theories of, of stuff in the sky. Right. Um, so as you are kind of indicating that in order to make these more of a fodder um, for uh, games or fiction, 
uh, we have to give the Sky Amoebas a worse attitude because in Constable, they seem, if not benign uh, per se, they're, they're just, you know, they're up there. They're, they're like birds. They're not, uh, you know, birds may even be more of a danger to us than uh, Sky yeah. Amoebas. But in order to put them in things, we have to explain that they're, some of them are star vampires. Or right. if they fall from the sky and they're mad at us, they become the blob. That there's mm. uh, uh, something menacing about them. Uh, that under certain conditions, perhaps if uh, a malign person is uh, manipulating orgone energy, uh, can turn them into a uh, hazard to uh, air traffic, for example. And that's something that I like is the notion that that if you know the the the, the sort of sky maybe you attract by manipulating the orgone is very dependent on the operator. That you, if you're a, a, a happy-go-lucky Luftwaffe-loving New Zealander like Trevor James Constable, you get relatively, as you say, benign uh, sky amoebas. But if you're a bad actor, uh, not James Woods, who's a great actor, but a different bad actor, a, a malign actor, then you would attract monstrous sky amoebas uh, to do ill. Trevor Constable uh, believes in the Ethereans, who are people who live in the etheric plane and, and send their ships. And he thinks that they're good, but maybe the Ethereans are running a, a game on Trevor James Constable. It would not be the first time that UFOs have lied uh, right. to uh, their contactees. And there can always be a, a rogue Ethereum. Right. Or a or a civil war amongst the Ethereans or a bunch of Ethereans that were much fonder of the Luftwaffe than other Ethereans. <laughs> and, 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 you know, maybe they fell in love with all those blonde boys zooming around at the high altitudes. And um, uh, because the Orgone, again, is is is. Uh, it's it's all about the love um, per Wilhelm Reich. So I think that it makes a, a fun and a different motivation than just, oh, they worship Cthulhu. And so they want to extirpate humanity. No, they do it out of love. They loved those those cute Luftwaffe boys and they're mad at everyone who killed them. And that's their sort of uh, motivation. And right. because they're Ethereum or they're uh, floating in and out of dimensions, they don't really understand that it's been, you know, 80 years and they don't really care about all the genociding. They just like the cute boys and, and they don't want to hear your, your objections. Well, that, that's what people come to this podcast for. Uh, Ken is, uh, uh, amoeba Luftwaffe shipping. Exactly. It, it is possibly the second or third most requested topic on the, on the Patreon. Uh, so I think we've already sort of run through the, the gaming implications of this, uh, you, <laughs> of, of giant sky amoebas. Yes. Uh, it, it's a, it's a difficult thing to turn into something weird that could happen in a game. <laughs> and fun. Uh, so are there any other, uh, sort of footnotes or, or cross currents, uh, follow Delta green, uh, is closer to the era when these images are being taken. So, uh, uh, we've already noted that uh, star vampires already sound a lot like uh, sky amoebas, so uh, mm -hmm. it could be a, a simple enough thing as, uh, you know, uh, flying polyps and the like are being misapprehended by uh, Mr. Constable and the uh, agents find out that something much worse is going on and, and go and intervene. And, and, and there's a full Trail of Cthulhu write-up for the um, uh, the gaseous wraiths from Horror in the Heights, if you want to use those, in the hideous creatures bestiary. So we have even their own thing that are a different thing, but that could also be misunderstood or misapprehended flying polyps or star vampires, as you say. But just letting you know that we've got your bases, your stratospheric bases covered. Right. And uh, the 60s, that's when Wilhelm Reich is being arrested and hounded, right? I think it begins in the 50s. But we, we can stretch it, I guess. We can get him there in... Uh, I mean, he dies in 1957, so... So it would have to what be... What I think uh, you can have is sort of his um, uh, successors and uh, pupils who are saying, oh, Wilhelm Reich is, is the beautiful pioneer of Orgone, but we've fixed it. We've added that special sauce that is the Cthulhu Mythos that will... Um, uh, let you um, investigate it as Delta Green people. Right. And perhaps we've uh, saved his essential salts just in case we need him. Just in case. Right. Or or we have his his imprint on the Orgone and you can summon him and now he's inside one of those sky amoebas. Um, the, 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 the Wilhelm Reichness uh, was released out into the Orgone at, at the end of his life and um, uh, that his his energy patterns uh, are, are floating around in the sky. We did a Wilhelm Reich uh, segment on the show, so you can go back and find that. I'm sure we had lots of great ideas. Uh, well, I, I think then uh, we've uh, run through things pretty well, and uh, we can go out, uh, uh, call down a few uh, sky amoebas ourselves, and uh, get them to uh, bring more kombucha for the uh, gray and the Nordic alien who are looking a little thirsty. And uh, since 
Uh, I think we're about to hit a check drop here in the Elliptony Hut. It's time for us to say farewell uh, for yet another week, but we'll be back a mere seven days from now with similar nonsense. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrin Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Ward off podcast-devouring amoebas by joining such beloved Patreon packers as... Roger Edge. Anders Moline. Ben Brigoff. Jeff Cars And Jean-Francois parody wear this show or drink it from a mug with ken and robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash ken robin check out our hottest new design carcosa fandango on twitter he's at kenneth height and he's at robin d laws see you next time and once again we will talk about stuff <laughs>